0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mixed Methods. This week, we decided to release our last two episodes recorded at the Kai conference. Hope you enjoy them and learn as much as I did. Here's this week's second episode. Ever wondered how you could get more insights out of your interviews? This week, we have a few researchers who did. Mary Ann, Elizabeth, and Beverly come from a variety of backgrounds, including a stint as a professor of anthropology. Together they have over 30 years of experience doing user research at companies like Microsoft, Adobe, eBay, PayPal, Intuit, and Google. Our conversation was about a workshop originated by Mary Ann and Elizabeth and now facilitated by Beverly as well. The workshop helps researchers continuously improve their interviewing skills. I found the takeaways helpful both personally and for a group. So today's episode, Interviewing, How to Not Leave Data on the Table. So yeah, you guys are here at CHI 2017 and you're teaching a course, UX Interviewing, personalized coaching, so you don't leave any data on the table. Um, What was kind of the inspiration for putting this course together? Where did it start? Yeah, so I
1: started with um, a couple of years ago. I was collaborating with a researcher and he was moderating the sessions and I was observing. And I was watching the sessions and there were places where um, I noticed that, ooh, ooh, I wish we had dug a little deeper into that. Or, you know, I noticed the um, little habits that he was doing that he probably wasn't aware of that made me uncomfortable about how he was dealing with participants and stuff like that. And I think it was things that had sort of just crept into his style of doing things that he really wasn't aware of. And it occurred to me that you know if you went to grad school you had probably intensive kind of training i had to do this stuff in grad school but after that it stops that when you're working with teams they're focused on the participant nobody's focused on the researcher you're not, you may get uh, feedback on the research plan but rarely are you going to get feedback on how you moderated or ways you could have asked questions differently or sort of those types of behaviors and so I thought well what if we what if we turn the lens on the researcher and what if we did that you know we all have videos this one I was working at Google so we have tons of videos of each other. Um, Doing these interviews, what if we sat down and looked at these videos? And so um, I pulled in Elizabeth at that point, and our colleague um, Martin Ortlieb at the same time, and we uh, created a class for UX University in 2015, and turnout was fantastic. Uh, so lots of people were interested in like, hey, how can I really up my game and do a little bit better, um, and and you know up my skills a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. That was Marianne Berkovich. She did UX research at Google for nine years and Adobe for about four, before starting her own user research consultancy a little less than a year ago. She also collects floaty pens, like the ones where you tip them back and forth and a little thing moves back and forth. Yeah, and I I loved in the article that you wrote about the course, you mentioned how, you know, in other areas of UX like design, they have these really regular critiques that are actually built into their process. And, you know... I love that you put this course together, and it also makes me think, hey, what what could I have done better? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's so many opportunities for growth, and this, this course is obviously one of those. So, you know, you just said the course was so popular. The response was really great. What do you think made it so popular? And maybe I should ask Beverly because you actually participated in the course before becoming a facilitator. This is Beverly Freeman. She's been working in user research for about 12 years, everywhere from eBay to PayPal, and is currently a senior UX researcher at
2: Google. She is also an avid foodie. What really attracted me to the course was the idea that it wasn't just one of those interviewing one-on-one 101 courses that, you, that are very abundant, where they talk about the kind of the, the table stakes of interviewing and how not to lead participants, etc., what really attracted me to it was the idea of not leaving data on the table. And anytime you have an interaction with a user or a potential user, even if you have fairly tactical goals for a research project, there's always so much gold that you can uncover. And I was really attracted to the idea that in a safe environment with your peers, everyone comes from different Backgrounds. Everyone has their own personal style of interacting with participants. That we could help each other to identify opportunities to unearth some of those um, hidden gems. Um, so it was a really great experience for me as a participant in the um, in the workshop. And one of the things that Marianne said in that workshop was she gave this analogy of like we're all pigs sniffing around for truffles. <laughs> And that if you come across something, and I think a lot of us as researchers sometimes in the course of interacting with a participant, I know for me I get this kind of spidey sense that there's something there, and then the participant will make some offhand comment. And it may be not something you anticipated, but you know that if you were to take a little detour and pursue that, you're going to come up with something that you hadn't anticipated that could really become some um, a really big insight for you. So as a, as a participant in the workshop, I really appreciated that everyone could learn from each other, no matter how much or how little experience we had, just because everyone has different ways of interacting with people.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And maybe, too, we should push um, a little bit on the value of the the video. I mean, part of the reason I got pulled into this is I was hoping to do a course on kind of interviewing strategies, probes, et cetera, um, and we ended up... Um, getting pulled in because it was really that power of having a video and actually seeing yourself doing it. And I I think that's what makes a difference because you can know on the surface that these are all things that you should do. We all assume that we do them because we've heard them and we've thought about them. But seeing yourself doing it and, you know, getting that response from your other colleagues that let's let's focus in I think is super, super powerful. I am still monitoring. I know you guys can't see me, but I'm a hand talker. And so when we get into the interview, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm also a a physical note taker, so I'm always there with the the pen. And it was super compelling to me to have uh, Marianne and Martin point out that that pen in hand for a hand talker looks quite aggressive stabbing at a participant. I will never do that again. And I think it's that both that that power of the video, right? Like you would never think to look at some of these things. But safe environment, video evidence, and so you're natural, you're not putting on a particular face, you're just looking at your actual practice. And it, it gives you that sense of the answering machine, right? You never really recognize what you're like in an interview until you take the time and do it. And this pushes
0: you to go there. Yeah, definitely. Elizabeth is also a senior UX researcher at Google. Before getting into industry about four years ago, she was an assistant professor of anthropology at University of Alabama. She did her dissertation in Borneo. And I'm hoping right now that there is at least one anthropologist listening that gets the joke. But just to be clear, she really did do her dissertation in Borneo. So yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about the video and how that plays into the course. Like Before somebody comes to this, what what do they need to do? What do they need to bring? Um, yeah, so what we decided is that we
1: wanted um, we wanted to get to kind of the juicy parts of, of the video. And so we picked an arbitrary kind of interval. So I think it was about 16 minutes into a study. Usually, CNA you know, studies are about an hour long, so kind of you're, you're into something juicy there. Um, and so we picked the arbitrary time, and so people would send us videos and kind of time mark to start the 60 minute, and then we would just watch from there and kind of see what happens. Um, and we would have a conversation about, you know, uh, well, there's cute little things that we, we introduce. I had uh, the end on card, we do talk about that in the, in the study. Um, but basically, anybody can stop at any time and say, hey, I noticed this type of behavior, or, you know, what's a different way that you could have asked that question? And so. Even I think, you know, sometimes we don't even get through 10 minutes of video per person is that we're, you know, we can stop it multiple times or sometimes it goes at a stretch and it's like, awesome, keep up. Good job. You know, you did really well there. And we can maybe stop and talk about the good things that people did as well and compliment them
0: mm-hmm.
1: on that. Um, so I think having that starting somewhere in the middle where things are kind of juicy that you get to see some some real interactions.
0: Yeah. So are people it, it's a video from an actual study that they've done professionally at work. So is, does that present any problems? I mean, <laughs> you want to take that?
3: Uh, so internally, it doesn't. And I, I think it, for people who are looking to replicate it at work, then it's certainly something that's a lot easier to do. We've been looking at ways to modify the course when it roadshows shows like this. Mm-hmm. And then you get into some of those proprietary issues. Uh, the way that we're dealing with that today is that we're actually going to have, or rather tomorrow, uh, we're going to have participants to create a session for a nonprofit. So there's, it does introduce some degree of the artificial when you're creating something bespoke for the session, but right now that's, that's the workaround. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think for a lot of the habits that are super ingrained, they're so ingrained that they come out regardless. You're going to see them. Um, But I I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit. about Kaizen. I mean, I think that's the the piece with the video, too, is that it's not just coming from the facilitators, it's also coming from the group. So it's this idea of continual improvement and a group-based improvement so that everyone's empowered to see something, right? Everybody's empowered to note where you've left data on the table, where you're doing something you don't realize. So we as facilitators watch the clips and we have a couple things that we want to bring out to the group, things that are common themes, things we're planning to hit on. But it's also very much open around the table for you to spot something and bring it to the attention. And so it's very much a responsibility for everyone in the class to really get involved and and be critiquers.
1: Yeah, and kind of building on what Beverly was saying about it's not a 101 class. It really is that next level that we assume that you have some proficiency that, um, you know, it's maybe long enough for some habits to be sort of ingrained or things that you're not aware of anymore to bring that to the forefront. And also thinking about what it does it take to become an expert, you know, 10,000 hours and that type of thing. So. And what it takes for continual improvement is to be mindful of those things, that you can't just do the same thing over and over again and expect to get better, so that you have to mindfully focus on those things. Um, so we also um, borrowed from this process uh, you know, from Toyota called Kaizen Continual Improvement. And they would have this production line when they were making the cars, and anybody along the line, if they saw something was not going right, they could pull the Andon cord, stop the line, make the right fixes and then start the production line again. So we kind of introduced that same concept of, you know, all of us are in this together and we're watching somebody's video is that anybody can pull that cord, stop the proceedings, figure out what's going on and then get back on the train again.
0: Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, people come to this course, they have a video of a study. Um, one thing that I liked about the actual course is that when you, you know, when somebody walks into it, you guys have purposefully done some things to put people at ease. Like, having fun music and, um, you know, something you called an amplification exercise of basically taking something good about somebody and, you know, kind of building on it. And I thought that was great because, um, you know, so much of your ability to give or receive feedback is dependent on, you know, a level of trust or ability to be vulnerable with someone else, especially when you're, you know, it's a professional, um, Well, it's something where you are trying to improve professionally with other people who are in your profession, because I think there could naturally, you know, be kind of a level of competition of, I don't want you to tell me that I'm bad at this. Um, So I think it's great that you guys do that. But then, you know, you get to the actual critique where you bring in this Kaizen approach. What are some of the things that, you know, you're looking for? Do you have any kind of, do you walk people through like, hey, here are the things we, we should focus on or we should be looking for? Or do you just trust that because they're in the class? they have a level of knowledge about that already? I think a little combination of both.
1: So we definitely start with um, guidelines of kind of good feedback, and maybe Elizabeth can talk about that in a second. Um, but I think because we are talking about researchers who are already very sensitized and attuned to looking at um, human behavior, that anything is fair play. But we have had some conversations about, um, amongst ourselves of looking for you know, body language, tone, as well as content, as well as like you know some of the common things that we've seen over and over again, kind of a lot of people do. So we do have this sort of repertoire of things that are likely to come up, but really we don't want it to be just about us. We want you know, the wisdom of the group to, to highlight the
3: things that are relevant. So and then likely to come up and also just some general guidelines for how to give good feedback. And we've based that pretty closely off of a good design critique. Um, Probably my my favorite one, and Beverly, probably it'd be great to hear what you remember from it. uh, is that it's not about you, and I, I think to speak to your competition, like, that's when it feels uncomfortable, when it's more of, I saw you do this, when I do it, which is better, <laughs> I do it this way, right? Yes, definitely. And, and so we, we push really hard on a couple of those, right? So not about you, focus on the situation and how in that particular situation, this interview could have gone in a different direction. Um I love this this comment um, that Marianne has about, like, rent it, rent the advice. Like, we're only seeing a very small snippet, and I think that that makes it safer, too. We're not ever saying you're a bad researcher. We're saying in this particular context, in this situation, it looks like you could have gotten more mileage doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And then you can rent that. You can consider it. You think about it in the fuller body of your work and decide if that's feedback that works for you. So when you're developing your own action plan, you're getting to decide what was a one-off from just that particular interview and what's something that's a larger pattern that you really want to address and think about.
0: Yeah, and buy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys have mentioned both that there are some common mistakes. I'm so curious. Like, what are the common? I'm like, I'm probably making 50% of them, if not more.
1: Why don't we each do one? So I'll do my favorite pet peeve, which is, um, is there a way to do X? Which um, (laughs) is right alongside where uh, we're not testing you. So there's certain things that we want the participant to feel comfortable. We want them to feel, you know, the pressure's off. And then we you know, unintentionally intentionally introduce the, these things that make it feel like, it's, you know, we're not testing Oh my God, I didn't know it was a test. All of a sudden, you're not having me thinking about tests. It's like, don't think about pink elephants. All of a sudden, I'm thinking about pink elephants. Uh-huh. So, um, so I think the same thing with, is there a way to do X? It's like, Well, clearly now as a participant, I'm thinking there is a way to do X and I didn't find it before and now you're asking me to find X. So I find like those things are find other ways to get at and maybe create a different scenario to see if they try to use X. But that particular phrasing of is there a way to do X is is a way to... That passive aggressive, like sort <laughs> of we're not testing you type of thing.
0: Yeah, well, and as you guys go around and say your favorite common mistake, I would love to also have you kind of give a good an example on the positive side of it for people who don't have kind of a group that they're sitting with while they're listening to this. So for that one, yeah.
1: So for that one, um, I think for me, especially when you're doing usability studies, is if you recruit the right people. So if there's particular features that I want to test, recruit the right people that would. Naturally, have to use those features would encounter those users, and then give them a scenario, not a task, but a scenario in which they would actually need to use that feature. And if they don't, that's data for me too, you know. And so I think it's for me, it's setting up that right scenario and seeing where they go, um, and seeing why that thing didn't come up. And if it did, then I can probe a little further on it. But um, it's it's really about getting the right people in the room and creating the right scenario.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's great because it definitely makes it more organic as opposed to. Here are three tasks. Even if there are three tasks that you, as a researcher, know you need to get covered, um, you know, allowing them to get there in a more organic way. I'm so I I love that you called out. I'm not testing you. I'm testing the feature because everyone says that. But I like what do you say instead of that? You're like I just don't say anything about it. I don't say anything. My philosophy is this is a human being.
1: I'm going to talk to them. I'm profoundly curious about their life. I want to understand their context and this thing that I'm handing them that they're going to act with is just, there are lots of things that they interact with in their life and I just wanna see how that particular thing, but it's about how it fits into their life. So I'm profoundly curious about them and their point of view rather than the thing itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: yeah, I think that's really interesting. I. I also think kind of one of the things that I moved away from when I moved into industry and outside of academia was being really upfront and honest about why have we chosen to speak to you. And that's one of the things I think that often falls out that maybe through IRB or whatever it was, it was just very much a part of the process um, for my previous life. And I think that that's one of the things that can be a substitute for we're not testing you, we're testing the product, is being really upfront about why are you here today? Because if you know why you're here, you know that you're exactly who we wanna talk to and that there's a justification and rationale for you sitting in the chair. And so then it, it becomes kind of implicit that you can't get it wrong because you were specially selected. And so the, The background on why we say we're not testing you is because we want you to feel comfortable. So I think it's about finding other ways to make people feel comfortable and to know that like they should be in the chair. They have a real interesting position and that we're not necessarily looking for a power user. Right? It's you we wanted to talk to.
0: Yeah, definitely. I love how you know these comments are all, again, around making it more of an organic interaction, which it sounds like what this course is really about in, in a lot of ways, because I think as researchers, we can get into these habits where it's like you walk in, you sit down. I'm not testing you or testing this feature. Task one, task two, task three. Thank you any feedback, you know what I mean? And it becomes this very robotic thing. And, and as a researcher, that's pretty boring as well. You know what I mean? Like you're not really getting to do the fun part of being a researcher, which is building these relationships that you're able to kind of, you know, get special insights through. So I love that that's kind of a theme so far. But yeah, what other common mistakes? I'm like, I'm loving this.
2: The favorite one I took from when I took the course was you see this video and clearly the moderator has a discussion guide that they're going through and there are certain topics they need to hit on to get data back to their team. And the participant will make some offhand comment almost under their breath, almost not willingly. So I remember there was one example where they're talking about something and the participant said, oh yeah, I used, to, I used to use this app or feature a lot, but not so much anymore. And their voice kind of trails off. And the feedback from the room was, hey, maybe that's something that you could pursue a little more to say, why not? And it would be very easy for teams to jump to conclusions about why someone's not using a certain app anymore. It would be very easy to jump to the conclusion that well obviously we, we just need to add more features. Um, and that might not be the case at all. It could be a change in their situation or lack of awareness, it could be a lot of reasons. And so I, I think a lot of times there are many things that participants are unwilling or unable to, to say um, unless you find a way to find the answer implicitly or really pull it out of them in a very skilled manner. And in the class, what I like was you're not just talking about, you're not just reacting to what each person is doing as a moderator, but when you see their inter- their interaction with participants, sometimes you'll, you'll see something that a participant says or does or something in the body language, and everyone in the room can point to an opportunity to say, oh, there could be something you could follow up there. And the people provide ideas for ways to follow up that don't put the participant um, on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes when someone says, well, I used to use this, but not so much anymore, sometimes I see researchers saying, so why don't you? And even if they don't use exactly that tone of voice, um, it can come across to participants as well. Oh gosh, they really want me to do that, so I need to say something nice about it. Like, oh yeah, I'll, I don't so much anymore, but I will. I will more in the future. I definitely am going to use it in the future. We see a lot, of, a lot of that kind of um, trying to please you as a, you know, as um, someone who's you know paid you for your time. And so one of the things that I try is sometimes someone makes a comment like that, and I say, oh, is there any particular reason why not? And I try to ha- invite them to tell me any reasons that are um due to their own choice or maybe any external factors that are beyond their control that might be contributing to it. And so I find myself asking a lot, like, oh, any particular reason? And sometimes they say no, there's no particular reason. And then I I I drop it or um or maybe there's some other something else to pursue.
0: Yeah, I, I love uh, you know, kind of calling out kind of going on those detours because I think one of the things that I see people who are less comfortable interviewing doing is staying very very close to a set of questions that they've they've written beforehand and I think one thing that you see with more experienced interviews interviewers is that they're able to you know have confidence in the guide that they've created and the information they need to gather but they're also able to kind of improvise a little bit more and actually have a conversation instead of leading an interview. Um, And, you know, the other thing I liked that you you brought up is that sometimes we make a lot of assumptions, which is kind of, you know, ironic, ironic, given that as researchers, you know, we're basically tasked with testing people's assumptions. Right. And and I think at least for me, like I hear all the time at work, people making these assumptions about how people use things or what kind of things people want. And I'm always like, oh, my gosh, like, you know so funny that like you're making these assumptions like, you know, but yeah, I think as researchers, sometimes we're quick to, you know, uh, jump on other people's assumptions, but slower to recognize our own. So I think it's great to kind of call that out. Um, Are there any other common mistakes that I'm like, I'm loving all of
3: these. I think, uh, I think you were characterizing it, maybe Marian as like um, the lazy researcher question. That's come up a lot in our feedback as being really helpful um, to the students. So I might speak to that one. Yeah, I would love to hear it. Um, and it's, in many ways, it's kind of a common interviewer probe, right? Um, what do you think about that? Or tell me more about that, these kind of general open-ended pieces. But it becomes something, I, I think it becomes a verbal tick, in a lot of ways, right? If you're not fully engaged, and it goes back to your point earlier, right? If you're you're a little bored with what you're doing, you've had this guide that you're always using, you know when there's a pause in the conversation, tell me more about that. Oh, what do you think about this? Tell me what you're saying, right? They become something that you insert, and so you don't have to be an active participant in the conversation anymore. And I think that that's, that's a big one for us is just to, um, move away from these kind of automatic replies and to be more thoughtful about where the participant's going so that you're responding to what they've said and not just filling in blanks at like dead time or, or silence. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: I have one more to add. Yeah. Is, uh, we'd like your feedback on X, Y, or Z. Um, so, you know, for me, uh, you know, that having that organic conversation is, I want to have that conversation and we're just, the things that we talk about in the their stories or the the products whatever just are you know kind of topics of conversation and I don't want to put the participant in that evaluative mode you know I don't want them to look at the room and be like okay oh that should be greener and this should be over here and that type of stuff like I don't want them to, to bring that critical eye I just want to see them how this thing that I'm going to introduce kind of they interact with it and whether it makes sense in their world and so that's something I totally avoid too, is that feedback and that evaluation. I think it's in that whole testing range that I'm allergic to, is that we're just going to have me and you, two people, we're having a conversation here. And I might bring up some topics and I might, you know, kind of nudge towards other topics, but it's really about having conversation and less of an evaluation about this, that, or the other thing. And I want them to evaluate these things.
2: I think one of the things that as researchers we often have to remind our stakeholders about is that users are not product experts and they are not designers. And a lot of times we get requests think oh can you can we see what people think about this? And I have to tell them I don't I frankly do not care what they think because they are not designers and if they try to give us specific design feedback then they will be wrong. <laughs> and if they try to give us product feedback they're going to think of desired features that at best are a band-aid and not really solve the, the true problem. And so our job is to help the team really understand the nature of the problem so that the team can come up with solutions. Like as researchers, we dig to understand The real problem and then we try to understand what are the characteristics of a good solution and then the designers and and product managers and engineers come up with the solution and then we work with uh, users to see how they interact with them but we never want to ask users directly for for feedback
0: yeah definitely I mean especially because like given the space that you know we're in it's it's about creating experiences that are so intuitive that for the most part you don't have to think Um, Okay, so we have been talking about how this critique process happens in your workshop. And I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on for people who are, you know, at home listening to this. Do you think, oh, they should go to work and they should get a group together and, you know, do a critique? Or is there anything that they could do at home on their own? You know, kind of what are your thoughts around that? Um, I think one of the things
1: that um, that did lend to the success at Google is that we do have a very trusting culture and that there is that um, culture of collaboration and support. And so I think it, it it did well there. So I think if they have teams that, that trust is there, I think it's a great activity to try. I think there's also room to um, create other communities like the Slack group. Um, and maybe people reach out to, to other folks who want to do this together and, um, you know if they they do have videos that aren't proprietary or if they want to create something special for this that they can then share with other people, um, I think finding those those groups and sort of those um, you know those smaller communities where people can share and get that that feedback. and especially, I think it would be really interesting across company boundaries and across different geographies and cultures and all sorts of things to get feedback and perspectives from other folks would be really fascinating.
0: yeah, definitely
3: and maybe think about it in terms of good versus better, right? I think there's a lot that you can learn in terms of watching your own video, absolutely. Like just taking that first step to see like this is what I this is what I look like when I'm doing that interview and being focused on self and where you miss opportunities, things that aren't coming across as opposed to the the typical framework where we're watching the video and we're we're analyzing the participant, right? Just shifting in focus, you're going to notice some things and you're going to get some value. Um, it gets better when you have that group because that group will reinforce things for you as well as see new things that you haven't. And I think there's something to having that community so that you feel a little braver to push back on things that you know you shouldn't be doing, but you decided to do for the benefit of the product team. Um, One example I think about, we had um, a UXer come in with this discussion guide that was so packed full of kind of unconnected questions, that it was really hard to get a dialogue going with the participant. And it was also hard to kind of follow his intuition and connect and kind of keep going with the participant when things got interesting, because he's like, I've got 27 more questions to get through, oh, no. and we're in a van. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: He's like, we have five minutes left.
3: <laughs> and so he's, he's pushing through, and he's missing all these amazing things, because this discussion guide is just too much, right? And he, he knew that uh, going in, but it sometimes takes a community of saying, yeah, push back, right? Like you've got this group behind you and you, you feel a little braver about doing the things that you know you should do. So I'd say, absolutely, there are definite potentials to do this independently at home. But if you can build a group, the group's going to give you a much bigger benefit. And, and that's why the class feels worth it.
1: And I think to feel that you're not so alone, that you're the only one who does these things so like, first of all, we all all the time, you know, even after years and years, I'm sure I'm still asking leading questions or I'm like, oh, that didn't come out quite right. You know, so I think that, um, you know, kind of cohesion to know that you're not the only one making mistakes and sort of we can learn from each other's mistakes and that we all maybe have common things that we do, you know, don't do well
3: and learn from one another's amazing practices. I mean, I'll pick on you, Beverly. You had like a game, I think, that you introduced at our session that I loved that I decided to copy after. And so you're not just critiquing. You're also seeing this new skill set from other people that you can then bring into your practice. And you won't get as much
0: of that on your own, right? New techniques, new ways to investigate. Yeah. I mean, even just however long we've been sitting here, I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. I have so much to work on, you know, because I think, you know, some of these things, um, they're just really common. I mean, obviously they're really commonplace, but you know, I, yeah, some of them like the, I'm not testing you, I'm testing the feature. Like I've always heard people encourage that. So it, but when, you know, we're having this conversation about, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense because it really kind of takes you out of the experience as a participant and, yeah. It's like, don't eat the cookie. Like whatever you do, don't eat the cookie. Of course, it's just like you, you really focus on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely see the value of having, uh, a group to learn from. Uh, so you guys also, you know, there's not just the critique fra- phase of the course. There's also, you know, kind of the, uh, reflect and make an action plan part. So I would love to kind of hear what happens in that phase. And
2: yeah, in my experience in the course, Actually, during the the process of getting feedback and seeing other people um, get feedback as well, as researchers, the reason why we're we're doing this exercise is to improve. And so I was already starting to jot down things I wanted to change from my behaviors, um, new patterns I wanted to adopt that I learned from others. And so what I appreciated was that, you know, sometimes you go to courses where, at the end, they have you do an action plan. You're like, OK, I'm going to do this. But in this kind of course, everyone's there to learn. And so the action plan is just a way to make concrete what you've already learned. And it was very lightweight. And it's, it's a matter of saying, what are the things you want to start doing? What are the things that you want to stop doing? And um, other other takeaways. And I remember in my experience as a, um, in the class, Again, I'd already jotted down some notes on a post-it, and having that one-sheeter just helped to reinforce the things I wanted to take away from the class that I had already learned during the course of the group discussion.
1: I think also we didn't want to make it um, overwhelming like oh my gosh it's like you know that, that feeling that you're having there's so many things I'm doing wrong there's so many things <laughs> that I want to try it's like okay you, you just got exposed to all these things pick a few you know start maybe with one maybe start with two so that it's not that you can actually make these changes and put it into practice rather than like oh my gosh I'm so overwhelmed with interesting things and, and, and then it doesn't go anywhere which happens sometimes with courses you you know get all excited and then it doesn't go anywhere
0: yeah and you know the whole purpose of this course is to kind of continuously get better, right? Especially because, you know, interviewing is just such a crucial skill for for a researcher, right? Like, I don't know if there's anything more important depending on your specialization, but what do you guys, you know, y- you do this course once, and then how how long do you wait before you do something like this again? Like, what's kind of the the process for continuously getting better as opposed to Doing this course once every five years, and you know the last two years of the five, you're kind of rusty again. You know, <laughs> like how does that work? I mean, it
3: gives me design jealousy because if you <laughs> if you look at the designers, right, they're doing this on probably a weekly basis. I think in my team, all sitting around, looking at mocks, deciding what could be better, giving feedback. I think that that would ultimately be the ideal. Right is that, that that it's not necessarily in the course that it's something you could take back to the team if you're working with other researchers that you could create your own cadence. Um, I would love to see people repeat the class at Google. We're just not quite to the point yet that we're offering it regularly enough for the the class to be where it happens. Um, so I don't know. I. I it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of how we want to promote that, how much can be individual, like take this as an item to kind of watch yourself after every study, pick one or two, think about what, you, what you've what you achieved and what's not. Um, but I, I think it would be a fantastic thing maybe to push with our participants to find a buddy or, or two to kind of check in, you know, check in two weeks out, check in a month out and see where you are. and um, Ideally, it would be the research critique would be like the design critique.
0: It would be something that we would find time for and and push as like part of the work week. Yeah, it's interesting because as designers, we have a unique opportunity in this area because, you know, we have people that are basically watching us most of the time when we're doing an interview, hopefully all of the time when we're doing an interview. Um and it, it's funny because even designers, it's not like they have people watching them as they're designing, like watching the design choices that they're making. That would Well, I'm sure there are some designers who are listening to this who are like, I have someone standing over my shoulder all the time. But, you know, as researchers, we really do have people who are engaged in that experience. And I think, you know, getting comfortable with something like this or kind of gaining the skills of, um, you know, critiquing and being critiqued in and of themselves are so important because You know, people could take some of the stuff that they're learning from this course and this discussion and, you know, try to apply it as a team um, to just, you know, continuously be doing that, even if it's a five minute, um, you know, conversation after a number of sessions. Yeah, actually, um, I was talking to Michael Margolis about the
1: class and kind of what we were doing. And, you know, he, he said something funny. He's like, you know, whenever he walks out of a study, the question on his mind is, you know, how did it go? Um, And when the team asks him that, they want to know, did the participant do this, you know, like all this stuff. And he's like, when his mind, how did it go as well? Did I, you know, ask the best questions? Did I, you know, leave any data on the table? Like, is this, is my methodology, is this the right method to learn what I want to learn and those types of things. And that how did it go question after a session, like when you're talking to a team, they're focused on something different, you know? So it's hard to have somebody to talk to about like answering that how did it go question about the research process itself.
0: And it's also interesting to think about um, how, you know, because I think a lot of researchers, depending on your organization and, you know, kind of the way you've set up research in your organization, um, they have a lot of other people who are engaging in these activities, right, that are becoming researchers in their own right. So, I mean, at least with them, right, if you have a designer on your team that you also have leading some interviews, you've kind of created this built in person to, you know, get feedback from and grow with.
2: One idea, if um, your organization doesn't have the bandwidth to do to replicate this course in its tire- entirety, is um, a lot of times you could find someone you respect, whether it be a researcher or someone who has the right instincts, and ask them, hey, I'm going to be doing these sessions. Can you please come and observe? And I explicitly would like you to take notes on opportunities where I could have um, dug deeper, like when are times when I actually left some data on the table. Because a lot of times we'll take other researchers with us on um, field visits or invite them to observe our sessions. And a lot of times that's done because the topic is of interest to you. It's in an adjacent area, for example. But if you find someone you trust and explicitly tell them, I want you to take notes on my moderation skills and my habits, um, then that invites them to give you constructive feedback. And that could be a a fairly low, uh, lightweight way for you to get that kind of feedback from others.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like take notes about the participant in black and notes about me in blue or something like that. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, how many people are typically in a group, right? Is it, I don't know, five, 10? I think we try to keep the groups to about four
1: Three or four, I think, is a little bit of a, a sweet spot. Um, and I think also it becomes a little bit of a uh, arithmetic exercise for us. It's like, well, this is the time that we have allotted and then, like, divided by three people or four people. And, like, so there's a bunch of other activities that we need to, to get in there. Um, but I think, you know, spending about 15 minutes or so per participant seems to be rich enough that they feel like they're getting personalized feedback and, like, not too much that the spotlight is is shi- sh-
0: shines a little too brightly on you. Yeah, definitely especially if it's the first time someone's done something like this, you're just sitting there like sweating. You know? <laughs> um, so you kind of, you mentioned that there are all these other little activities that you need to get through. What, what would you guys recommend in terms of, you know, resources or, um, you know, where are the best places for people to kind of educate themselves more on interviewing? or I don't know exactly what you do in these other little activities, but you know, so um, a lot of
1: activities and um, a lot of what actually happens in the course is um, in that, that medium article. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think if people read that, they can get a, a broad swath of what to do, but I think really the meat and what the interesting part is the other people in the room with you giving that feedback and kind of doing that critique. So I think, what we have is a very loose structure. There's nothing really, I think, magical about it. Mm -hmm. I think the magic really comes from having, first of all, yourself watching your own video, which is hard enough, um, and then getting that feedback from other people too.
3: And I would say too, if you're looking for general interview guidance, like what we've basically done is circumvent the need for that by bringing people in who have their own backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what makes this really valuable too, is you've got, um, I mean, UX researchers are coming from very different disciplines. And so you're, you've got a range of the social sciences, you've got some interesting things from HCI. And so they're all reading different literatures. And they've all come in with this really amazing reading list on the back burner. And so as opposed to putting out the time in advance to kind of create a reading list, we're letting that emerge from the people in the group. Um, and, and that's one of the things we try to push with the um, critique guidelines and feedback as well is that if you can give a reference, that's great, right? Like we always want, we want to cite the masters when you can. Mm-hmm. So if you see something and you're like, oh, you know what would be great here? This would be a really nice place for some gentle inattention for because it seems like you wanted to move on and you weren't able to, you might try putting your pen down and looking away, right? That's great from me, but if I can say, and Russ Bernard says that that is also a good idea in Research Methods for Anthropology, look it up, right? So (laughs) we kind of can do that a little bit, too. So I, I think we've spent a lot less time compiling a reading list, thinking about what are great places to go for interviewing techniques, because it really tends to come down to what worked with you And what stuck with you? And we get that from the other people in the class. So we're kind of taking that like standing on the shoulders of giants approach. That, and not any official reading, not any official recommendations, but as you're watching those videos and seeing things, try to think about why. And that might be something anecdotal from your own experience. It may be from something you read. And if it's something from what you read, that's a great place to share. And you can kind of track that back into other great reading. Yeah, definitely.
0: So what are, you know, what are your thoughts for people who are listening to this? Any final thoughts? People who are listening and they're like, okay, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to get it together, a group of four people. I think um, be brave and just do it. None of us want, loves to watch
1: ourselves on video. Or, um, so I think getting over that initial hump of, you know, the squeamishness of just watching yourself on video, it'll be okay.
3: Yeah. And I guess the part of that is to to make sure that you're asking. If you want feedback, ask for it. Because we have all of these kind of social conventions around being polite, not trying to overstep. It's uncomfortable to just reach out to someone and say, you know, here's a suggestion for you. And so if you want this, you really do have to ask for it. And I think the likelihood is that that person wants something similar, right? And then you'll find some common ground. Um, But someone has to be the brave one and say, I'd love to get some feedback and kind of open the door on
2: a critique. Yeah. Everyone in the research community wants to improve. And we all bring something so different to our practice from our different backgrounds and different personalities and communication styles. And anytime I've ever asked for feedback or taken the time to to intentionally learn from someone else, um, I become a better researcher. And that's something that Everyone in this community, I feel like, um, is very generous in reciprocating that and wanting to help each other. We only get better in our practice. And a lot of times, researchers, we all might be in the same team, but for the most part, we work fairly independently and we have so much to learn from each other other than just the content of our insights.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, join us for more UX research conversation in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. For my favorite UX research articles and Mixed Methods announcements, follow us on Twitter. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, who mixed and edited this episode, and Laura Levitt, who creates all our graphics. See you next time.